Well, welcome again to our worship service this morning. And uh, good to see so many people come out again. And we are in the book of 1 Peter again this morning. So turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. So 1 Peter chapter 2, and our text starts in verse 4. But before we read our text, in our previous few sermons, we've seen Peter using the what we've called the indicative imperative pattern. So this is where he makes statements, because of this, the indicative statement, because of this truth, then he expects the church believers to act or respond in a certain way. And then he gives us an imperative, a command, an instruction. He has provided his readers with the glorious hope of salvation as a means to endure trials and suffering. We saw that early on in 1 Peter chapter 1. And then given clear instruction as to how this is to be lived out in the believer's life. In this portion of Scripture we are in today, we see him really focus in on our identity, on the believer's identity in Christ, our position in Christ as a result of God's um, merciful salvation. Our extraordinary privilege as people chosen and redeemed by God and for God and for His glory. So in some of the previous passages as we work through it, it's been a little bit easier to outline because Peter gives us instructions. He gives us what, what we call in, in grammar verbs, right? He gives us the imperative statements. And we can look at these and we can focus on them. How do we live? What are we to do? We can take these instructions from the text and move forward. But in this passage, there are no obvious verbs in this portion of Scripture giving us biblical instruction, how to, how to live. So we note that Peter's main focus here again is really providing a portrait of who we are in Christ. And as I've titled this service, sermon, a privileged people. That is who we are. And that's what we're going to be focused on today. A privileged people. The word privilege is defined as a special right an advantage or immunity granted or available only to a particular person or group. We live in a time where the term privilege is often misused and construed in a negative light. When we hear phrases like white privilege, male privilege, female privilege, social or economical privilege, our tendency is to recoil from them because the insinuations that are derived from the use of such phrases. These phrases are often used in a derogatory way and the intent is often enshrined in an attitude of greed or guilt or envy. But this morning, we want to look at how this term fits perfectly in describing our identity in Christ Jesus. We are a special people with an advantage and an immunity granted to us. So we will look this morning as our position as a privileged people. As a recap, since it's been a while since the last sermon on in this series, I'll do a, offer a bit of a brief recap. 
and to properly place our passage this morning into its proper context, a brief review of what we have covered so far in our time in 1 Peter. So we've seen as God's elects, God's elect are exiles or strangers in this world. We are sojourners. We do not belong. We are foreigners in this land. In the first few verses of chapter 1, we see that God shows us and Jesus redeems us from our previous futile way of life. And the Holy Spirit sanctifies us for obedience to Christ. Therefore, because of this work, we have an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance waiting for us in heaven. Being guarded by God Himself, And by faith we receive God's salvation and we are called to leave behind our old way of life and look to this glorious promise, even though now, as Peter says, for a little while we are grieved by trials of various kinds. Peter uses the beautiful illustration of our eternal salvation to contrast against the temporal nature of our current trials. And then he points us to lives of holiness and reverent fear. We saw that in verses 16 and not to 19. Living holy entails a new way of life. To be holy means we've been set apart. We've been sanctified. We are chosen people, special people. So this entails a new way of life. No longer are we enslaved to the sin nature of our flesh. No longer do we walk in the futile ways of our past but we are in a new way of life. And especially when we think for Gentiles who were once so far off from God, but are now His people. And we hear that language in our passage today. So 1 Peter chapter 1, the first 21 verses or so, really established the theological foundation for this entire epistle. It teaches us that God is holy. And he has made his elect holy first judicially by atoning for our sins with the blood of Christ. And second, God has made us holy morally by sanctifying work of the Spirit. And when Peter describes this holiness, he has in view this picture of the church as a community. 1 Peter 1.22 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Peter then gives instruction how to do this. And we saw in our last sermon on, uh, in this text, to put away, in chapter 2, verse 1, he's telling us to put away a series of vices. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. We saw that each of these, in some way or some form, damage or destroy relationship. Each of these vices, in some way or some form, attack community, attack the church, the body. And later in chapter 3 and 4, when we get there, we see the opposite where he exhorts us to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. These build up 
community. These build up the church. In chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, Peter writes, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you have tasted that the Lord is good, then you are a partaker of this glorious salvation, a member of this community known as the body of Christ, the church. Then you are called to grow and mature in Him, serving this community of believers for the edification of others and ultimately to the glory of God. So our passage this morning then, with that as the background, describes the basis for our belonging to this community. The privileged identity we as Christians have in being united with Jesus Christ and belonging to the kingdom of God. So in chapter 2, starting in verse 4, As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So in preparing this sermon, I broke this portion of Scripture up into three points. As I completed my two points, points, I recognized that either we would have to be a little bit short today or go well over time. So I hope you guys don't have early dinner plans. No, so we'll cover the first two points today. But the three points of the portion of Scripture that I looked at, three things to help us to understand our foundation and identity as a privileged people of God. And the first point, the Christian's foundation in Christ, the living stone. The Christian's foundation in Christ, the living stone. And the second point that we'll cover today is the Christian as a spiritual building. And we'll be covering verses 4 through 8 in this portion, in this sermon. So point number one, the Christian's foundation in Christ, the living stone. Our text begins with the phrase, as you come to Him. And we'll pause there for a second. We often hear the expression, I came to Christ. I came to Him. And that is the expression that Peter has in mind here. Our coming to Christ certainly begins at the time of our salvation when God calls us and opens our eyes in faith. 
In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus uses this language when he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus calls men to himself. In John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In verse 37, he says of John chapter 6, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And in John chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus states, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The idea of coming to Jesus is what Peter has in mind. Remember, Peter was one of the disciples with Jesus when Jesus taught this. He would have heard this in person. He would have heard Jesus use this language personally. By coming to Christ, by tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, we enter into this place of spiritual privilege. We hear much of our duty as Christians, and rightfully so. But we must also remember our privilege as the children of God. So the idea here is not only our coming to Jesus for salvation, but also our coming to Him to remain in Him, to abide in Him. We come near to Him to remain in His presence and to worship Him. Another form of the verb translated as come to Him is the term that you might be familiar with it from Scripture, a proselyte. Which means a person who was afar off who drew near. This word is used to define Gentiles who draw near to God though they were outside of God's covenant. They were outside of his promises, outside of the law. When a Gentile would join the nation of Israel, they would be considered a proselyte. They drew near. They came near. Though they were afar off. And so Peter is speaking about those who come to Christ and remain in him and worship him. Peter then identifies the one to whom we come. In verse 4, he continues, A living stone, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. He identifies Jesus, the living stone, with three different Old Testament prophetic passages in verses 6 to 8. The first one is in Isaiah 28.16. And then we'll also see in Psalm 118.22. And then he quotes Romans 9.33, which is cited from Isaiah 8.14. But in verse 6 of 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. Then he quotes Psalm, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then again Isaiah, And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So in doing this, Peter identifies Jesus Christ as the coming Messiah, the Redeemer that the prophets spoke of, the one by whom salvation comes. By using the word living as part of this metaphor, a living stone, Peter references Christ's resurrection and links links him to the previous statements he has made in chapter 1. 
Chapter 1, verse 3, Peter speaks of our living hope. And in verse 23, Peter speaks of the living and abiding Word of God. And here we see Jesus as the living stone. Notice the similarity in language. In verse 4, where he says, A living stone chosen and precious. And also in verse 6, where he quotes Isaiah, A cornerstone chosen and precious. When God exiled Israel from the land because of their disobedience, they had no access to the temple. This was devastating, though not to be forever. The prophets announced that God would one day restore His people and rebuild the temple. And this is where Isaiah declares what God has spoken. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and uh, and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in Him. Isaiah prophesied this cornerstone to be a person. When Jesus walked the earth, he declared he was the temple. Destroy the temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But he was speaking about the temple of his body, John chapter 2. The building had become personal. Jesus was the place through which people enter into God's presence. Through Christ, men draw near to God. Through Christ, atonement was made. In another sense, Jesus is the cornerstone of the foundation of this temple. It is on this foundation that God's kingdom is being built up with living stones, believers. The the cornerstone serves as a plumb line, ensuring that the rest of the building is built straight and square. If the cornerstone was not perfectly cut or hewn, the rest of the building is off. Therefore, it is of utmost importance that the cornerstone is perfectly shaped and perfectly sized for the building project. From the point of the cornerstone, the rest of the angles of the foundation are set. The cornerstone was the most important piece in a building project in ensuring that that building would be erected properly and rightfully as planned. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, chosen and prepared by God, and from this foundation, the church is built. And this structure, designed and built by God, will be all that remains as it is perfectly fitted. It is the kingdom that He is building. It is the body that He is constructing. In the Old Testament references that Peter used, God declares that He will lay down a foundation a foundation stone, and he will build on it. Jesus claims to be this foundation stone in the parable of the tenants. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 21. So we look at the parable of the tenants. Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard 
and put a fence around it, and dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get this fruit. And the tenants took his servants, and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants, more than the first day, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their season. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard this parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. So this parable creates a very specific scene. One commentator notes, Before constructing a building, Stonemasons search piles of rocks for boulders with the shape and size to become foundation stones, cornerstones, and capstones. Jesus depicts them here as discarding one after the other. They finally see the perfect stone which represents the Messiah, but when they examined it, they reject it. Likewise, Israel's leaders searched for their Messiah. But when they found him, they judged him a false prophet and they killed him. End quote. Peter twice refers to Jesus as being chosen and precious, highly valued or honored. So here is a stone, perfectly shaped and perfectly designed, perfectly hewn out by God himself to accomplish its purpose as the cornerstone of this building. He is a living stone. And when we think of stones, we do not think of living beings, but rather dead, inanimate objects. A stone has no life, but here we do not just have a stone, but rather a living stone. This is because this stone is Christ. And Christ rose from the dead and is alive forevermore. Christ has living relationships with living people. And he gives life to all who come to him in faith. And he satisfies their thirst. This is the perfect precious stone that these builders rejected. They assumed judgment over this stone. The builders created man, assumed judgment over the Creator's chosen perfect stone. And they rejected it. They deemed it unfit. Now be sure, 
their rejection of this of Christ as the cornerstone does not nullify his qualification. He is perfect. He is precious, chosen by God for this specific purpose. But rather, the builders rejecting the stone reveals their spiritual blindness. Their rejection of the stone actually sits in judgment over them and will lead, as we saw, to their ultimate shame. As Jesus said in our reference in Matthew 21, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The builders judged the stone to be unfit. Their judgment, in fact, sits in judgment over them. This stone that they stumbled over will crush them. This is harsh and hard language. But we must remember Jesus came to divide humanity between those who believe in Him and those who reject Him. Between those who are built onto Him and those who stumble over and are crushed by Him. If you're still in the book of Matthew, turn to chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, again another familiar passage in verse 35. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus at times is a very offensive and divisive figure. He demands total allegiance. He is the cornerstone or he is nothing. He is not a stone we add to our own building. But he calls us to be built into his building. We are built into his eternal kingdom. And to everyone who hears this, it is either the most wonderful news you will ever hear or it is the most offensive message you will ever hear. But as we saw earlier, whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. As a people of God, we are privileged to be part of this building We are part of God's building project. This leads us to our next point. Point number two, the Christian as a spiritual building. The Christian as a spiritual building. And our main text for this point is verse 5 of chapter 2. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You yourselves, like living stones, according to Peter, all that we are rests on all that Jesus is. Let me repeat that. All that we are rests on who Jesus is. If we come to Christ, the living stone, Peter says, we also become living stones. 
Jesus is the cornerstone in verse 6, and God builds us into a spiritual house from that cornerstone up. Peter says Jesus is the chosen one. And in verse 9, he says we are God's chosen ones. So not only is Christ a living stone, chosen and precious in the sight of God, but also all who believe and belong to Christ participate in His life as being ourselves living stones chosen of God. The church is made up of the called out ones. This is where we have the term ecclesia, the called out ones. It's the term translated as church in the New Testament. The church is made up of community of people. It is not a physical building. This is a spiritual house, a spiritual building that God is putting together. Together the church makes up the body of Christ, of which He is the head. And in this sense, the church, the body of believers, we are being built into a spiritual, not a physical house. A house that is continually being added to as God calls more people to salvation. The writer of Hebrews states in chapter 3, verse 6, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Every Christian is brought into God's building project, built on the cornerstone and sharing in his identity and status. Just as Jesus was rejected by the world, so are we. Just as Jesus is God's chosen, so are we. Just as Jesus is honored, so will we be at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the temple served as God's house. The place of God's presence. And we see this language being used by Peter when he speaks of a spiritual house. This is where God would meet with His people. So Peter, identifying Christians as being part of the spiritual house, Peter means that they, the church, are God's temple. All Christians are individually indwelt by God's Spirit. We see this in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 9. Paul writes, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit of life is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Since the Spirit of God dwells in each one of us, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, chapter 6, verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? 
And we also see repeatedly in the New Testament that Christians are corporately the temple of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians again in chapter 3, verse 16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells within you? Paul repeats this phrase often. And this temple is the place where God's glory dwells. Turn to Ephesians. Let's look at this passage in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, verse 19, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we see Paul using the same language that Peter uses. Christ Jesus Himself, the cornerstone of this building, this temple that God is building, this new covenant temple. And we as believers are being built up into this temple. As Peter says, we are living stones And God uses these stones to build up this temple, a place for His glory to dwell in. As Paul repeatedly said in those passages that we saw, the Spirit dwells in us. We have the Spirit. If we are His children, the Spirit of God dwells in us and gives life to our mortal bodies. We are living stones, and we are being built into a living building, this temple, God's temple. So no matter how hard or how dark life gets, no matter how difficult our times of suffering, we know that God is always with us. He dwells in us by His Spirit. We can trust His promise to never leave or forsake us. He will not abandon His church nor any of the stones that He has used to build it. Being living stones in God's building project where His Spirit dwells also means that our worship is no longer limited to certain locations. But no matter where we are in the world, Christians have access to God being the temple in which His Spirit dwells. Let's comprehend this truth for a minute. As we gather this morning as a local body, As we gather as a body of believers, God is with us. We do not need to plead for His presence to show up through song or other gimmicks. He is with us. We do not need to beg God to show up. We do not need to travel to certain locations or sign up to encounter the Holy Spirit. God is with us. He dwells with us. He is with us whenever and wherever we gather. Because we are living stones in God's spiritual house. We are, as Peter says, a holy priesthood. In verse 5, he says of chapter 2, we are to be a holy priesthood 
to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And as a priesthood, in the Old Testament, the basic function of the priest was to offer up sacrifices to God in keeping with the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant. These sacrifices were physical sacrifices, animal, grain, and grain offerings. We are a different kind of priesthood. We are a spiritual priesthood, a holy priesthood, in which each believer is called to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. At the very heart of worship is the thought of offering up sacrifices. And in Romans 12.1, the Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. R.C. Sproul wrote notes on this verse. The first way in which we function as spiritual priests is by offering the sacrifice of praise to God, which is what worship is. Worship is not entertainment. Worship is when the people of God lift up their praises, adoration, and affection to God. Just as the priests lifted up the blood offering in the Old Testament, we lift up our reverence and adoration to God in praise. We do not come to church to watch the minister do that. We are all to do it. End quote. Our spiritual sacrifice is worship. Our praise and adoration. Our continual worship of Him and how we conduct our lives. And as living sacrifices, we do not offer our sacrifice on our own merit. It is not on my works. It is not on our works that we offer the spiritual worship, the spiritual sacrifice. It is not on our own merit. If we were to offer our sacrifices to God on the basis of our own merit, God's response would be very similar as it was towards Israel when they violated God's covenant. In Isaiah chapter 1, we see God's response to the nation of Israel. They had violated His covenant and continued their sacrifices. And in Isaiah chapter 1, Verse 11, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings, Incense is an abomination to me. The new, new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations I cannot endure. Iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. This was God's response 
to the disobedient nation. And likewise, His response to us, if we were to offer our sacrifices on our own merit, we fail. We come short all the time. During this time, God said He hates the feasts of the people. And for us, trying to offer spiritual sacrifices on our own merit is just as repugnant to Him as Israel's sacrifices in their disobedience. The only thing that makes our spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God is that they are offered through our mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ. His merit as our great priest is our only grounds of acceptable, of acceptance before God. He carries our praises and adoration before the throne of God as He is the one who has sanctified them by His sacrifice. So our spiritual worship, our spiritual sacrifices are sanctified by Jesus Christ through His sacrifice. And it is through this that Jesus Christ stands as a mediator for us. That our sacrifice, that our worship is acceptable before God because they are no longer based on our own merit, but they are based on the merit of Jesus Christ who God has made into this perfect foundation, this perfect cornerstone in which we are being built. Our Christian witness during the time of exile on this world includes a life that praises God. Just as the priests in the Old Testament served as mediators between God and His people, we now too serve as ambassadors of our Lord Jesus Christ and mediators between God and this lost world. We have been set apart to make much of God in this world. As children of God, we are not complacent. We have a purpose and to serve as mediators. And Paul says in Romans chapter 10, In Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 13, the Apostle Paul says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Everything we do in this life as believers is to make much of God and to spread His fame. We spread His fame. We make much of Him through the proclamation of His Word. In verse 9 of our text, though we'll cover those verses more in detail in the next sermon, but Peter says, We are a people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We are to make much of Him to proclaim His excellencies 
That is our purpose as believers. That is the privilege we have as being part of the spiritual building. As God builds up this building and puts us into there and fits us perfectly into this temple, we offer sacrifice of worship, spiritual worship. We proclaim His Word. We take His Word to the nations. We take it to the lost world around us. How are they to hear unless... Someone preaches. Each one of us has been called to proclaim the excellencies of God, to proclaim His gospel, to proclaim this marvelous news, this good news. We are mediators between God and this lost world. Take His Word and proclaim it. Call lost sinners to Him. And in conclusion this morning, because Jesus is the chosen and precious, perfect cornerstone in God's building project, we have confidence as living stones being built up by God into the spiritual house. We have confidence that we are a privileged people. Therefore, no matter what circumstances of trial or suffering we may find ourselves in, we know that God is in control. He is building us up for His glory, for His marvelous Word to be proclaimed, the excellencies of His marvelous grace. And through these things, He is preparing us for that. God is orchestrating everything for His purposes and His glory. None of it is in vain. And in that, brothers and sisters, we can take hope. Everything that we endure in this world is being orchestrated by God and for His glory. It is the privilege that we have of being part of His building project. That we are living stones likened to Christ Jesus Himself. Our identity is in Him. The living, chosen, perfect stone as the foundation of this building. And that is who Peter is likening us to. So brothers and sisters, this is our identity as believers in Jesus Christ. We find our identity in Him, and though we fail, and though we fall, and though we stumble so often, our worship is sanctified by Him. He mediates before the throne of God, Almighty God, and presents our praises to Him. And because He has sanctified them, they are a sweet aroma to our God because of the marvelous grace of Jesus Christ. I want to close with this quote now. God has written the end of the story, and it will reach that conclusion. So regardless of the shame we may face now, and regardless of His rejection now, Jesus will return at the appointed time to judge the righteous and the unrighteous. Those who embrace God's chosen cornerstone are appointed to receive honor. And those who rejected God's chosen cornerstone are appointed to receive shame. 
This is the final and great reversal that motivates us now to endure the shame that the world casts upon us and to remain faithful. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You again for Your marvelous grace. We thank You for Your mercy in saving us. And God, we thank You that You place each one of us as living stones into this building project. You place us onto the foundation that is Christ Jesus and it is in Him that we find our identity, that we recognize that we are a privileged people. God, help us to remember that and help this to be true. And take Your Word and these verses that we've looked at today, God, and implant them into the minds and hearts of each one that hears them. And help us to live in light of the fact that we are living stones chosen by You for Your glory as You indwell each one of us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.